It's Jared. So as most of our listeners from California would attest to, there is a significant housing crisis going on in the state. With a record number of people experiencing homelessness, rising rents and wage stagnation across the board, permanent shelter for a lot of Californians is no sure thing. And as the pandemic has brought to light, it's probably worse than we think. And that's due to some underlying trends, but also the fact that the economic fallout from COVID-19 is causing mass problems across housing. But a bedrock issue of the housing crisis in California is that there simply is not a lot of housing in dense areas. There's not a lot of affordable housing in specific, but in general, development in California is very difficult. Uh, And sometimes for good reason, right? California has some of the strictest environmental regulations when building projects, and that's arguably for a good reason, but it also prevents a lot of developments from sprying up, which creates a shorter supply of housing. And that, of course, will mean that rents will go up and people will be out of a house. This is kind of basic supply and demand economics. Um, But one thing that a lot of people really aren't aware of is, yes, there is these policy reasons why development is slow, but there's also a key reason, both in California and across the nation, that affordable housing units aren't built. And that's because of NIMBYism. And you might be thinking, "What, what the hell is that word? That doesn't even sound like English. But NIMBY is an acronym that stands for not in my backyard. And we'll get more into that later. But basically, it's this idea that you support something in theory, but when it is personally being built or affecting your neighborhood, you don't want that. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever driven along Benedict Canyon or in it kind of, uh, and really anywhere. I mean, you'll see this all the time where you'll see these posters along the freeway or along a Canyon road saying, stop the building of blank. And it'll be some name of a development of some kind. And as much as People, especially in California, which is a very left-leaning state, want affordable housing. Not that many people want it built near them. And that's for a few reasons. Um, But I won't get into those now because for today's episode, we're going to explore all about NIMBYism, both the psychology of it, the history of it, and how it prevents a lot of important infrastructure from being built. So for that, I sit down with professor of political science from George Washington University, Michael Hankinson who is an expert in NIMBYism and land use policy. So I'm really excited that we have an academic expert here to break down something that sounds really abstract, but is really, really important for both California and the nation. So stay tuned. Hey, Michael, thanks for coming on to Contested. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk today. Yeah, I'm really excited for this episode in specific because I feel like NIMBYism is, first of all, it sounds like a really scary word. Like it doesn't sound like a real English word, but I think it's <laughs> so integral to a lot of roadblocks in public policy and an integral part of housing in general. So, but before we begin and hop into that, if you could just provide a little bit of an introduction on who you are and how you got interested in studying and following NIMBYism. Sure thing. So my name is Michael Hankinson. I'm an assistant professor of political science at George Washington University. And I got interested in NIMBYism through kind of a long path that actually went back to when I was uh, growing up in Pennsylvania, southeastern Pennsylvania, where the suburbs, to use a metaphor, began to devour the countryside. 
And so kind of these exurban areas, uh, a lot of farms. I lived on a farm for some period of time. And coming from a strong kind of environmental norm, which we should get back to kind of towards the end of this, about what does it mean to have environmentalism within NIMBYism? Mm. Environmental norm of, of my parents, there's definitely seeing suburban sprawl as a bad thing. And so as an undergrad, that got me interested in why is it that these, uh, these kind of sprawling developments are turning apple orchards into, you know, McMansion developments and realizing that land use policy is all interconnected, right? What happens mm -hmm. an hour outside of Washington, D.C. is driven by what's going on within the district itself and the same for every city out there. So it's been a long journey. And really the kind of exciting thing is that within political science as a discipline, there's, there's more attention being paid to local politics and how it affects some of these larger macro trends, whether it's housing affordability, access to opportunity, climate change. A lot of this comes down to local public policy and just local politics. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, what's the saying? All politics is local? Because, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, or at least in theory, because, yeah, I think NIMBYism is a great example of that. And you're 100% correct in that it's all very much connected. And I think the environment is definitely an unforeseen loser in a lot of it as well, because we always focus on the affordability aspect, but we don't really understand the land itself. And I think that's a great point. But we keep using this term, so I think it's about time to define it. In the simple terms, what does NIMBY stand for and what is NIMBYism? So the term NIMBY is an acronym. So it literally stands for not in my backyard. And it, that leads to some typos because back and yard are, are often written as one word. So where's the Y come from? But all that aside, not in my backyard. Now that seems intuitive, but a big frustration, a uh, pet peeve of mine is that it doesn't really kind of um, define things that well, right? You have to <laughs> define what your backyard is. And that's actually kind of tricky. So a lot of people slap a NIMBY label. Well, okay, so, so let me give, a, let me give a, a more broader definition before I get, get nitty gritty here, is that people use the term NIMBYism to, in theory, describe someone who may be for something in theory, but not in mm -hmm. practice when it comes to the location of a use within the built environment. Okay, what do I mean by that? Because that's already a kind of an esoteric term. We live on Earth. <laughs> There's a lot of policies. Yeah, I guess our basic here. Yeah. We live on planet Earth. There is a wide array of public policies or just things, and things have to go somewhere, right? So it, it can range from housing, which we're going to talk about, to we all produce waste, trash, right? And, and none of us like the idea of filling up a landfill, but everyone's pretty much on board that we need landfills somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, Government has to decide, my government elected officials have to decide where to put that landfill. And all of a sudden, you're conflicted with something where we all support the idea that you have to have a landfill. Again, we don't love it, but it has to go somewhere. None of us want that in our neighborhood. And so therein lies the tension when people say, yes, I'm going to vote that we need to build a landfill. But if you put it, if, you, if you're going to locate near my community, I'm going to actually come out and protest and block it. So just not in my backyard. And that can apply to, you know, landfills are, are very straightforward one. It can apply to clean energy infrastructure. We see growing public support for action on climate change, things like a Green New Deal. But we see many of these very liberal communities fighting against the actual infrastructure we need to mm -hmm. bring carbon emissions down, blocking wind turbines from being built, uh, different types of power infrastructure. And 
also down again moving away from housing things like responding to the opioid epidemic and my past research with a colleague justin abendictus kessner of harvard we find bipartisan support for increasing funding for opioid addiction treatment we also find bipartisan opposition <laughs> to locating new treatment clinics in one's own community <laughs> people don't want a methadone clinic down the street but that methadone clinic is going to have to be you know near something and so this is really everywhere. So this phenomenon's everywhere because we have to place things in order to provide these public goods. And I guess the one little esoteric thing that, that I'll chime in on is you asked about a definition for it, is that there actually isn't a really good definition for NIMBYism because oftentimes I think the classical definition is I support this thing within my sphere. I just don't want it near where I live. But sometimes people are called NIMBYs because they just don't support the thing flat out, yeah. right? If, if, you're, if you're living in California, you may think like, California doesn't need any more housing. I don't care about it in my community. I don't care about it anywhere in the state. It's just not an issue. And those people are called NIMBYs. It's actually kind of a misnomer because they're just opposed to anything. There's an acronym for that that I came across as an undergrad, which was called a BANANA, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. <laughs> And I'm like, well, that's more appropriate. They're not NIMBYs. They're consistent. They don't want it near them. They don't want it far away from them. That's not NIMBYism in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And I think that's something that when I, first of all, when I've used this term, half the people are like, what is that? And other people, I would say, predominantly default to what you're saying, which is just, no, we don't want development, whether that's from a libertarian perspective or elsewhere. It's just that we don't need it. And as someone who lives in Los Angeles, I would say most people, though, do fall into the NIMBY category here, which is that. Yes, most people would admit there's a housing crisis, and that's data-driven, right? That's not really an ideological divide. But yeah, there's not a great place to do it anywhere, whether that's affordable housing or just housing outright. And I think the landfill example is a, a really strong one because no one likes the smell of trash, right? Some people are like, yes, we need housing, and you know that's a more detached fear of what affordable housing brings. But no one wants a landfill. It's the same reason no one wants the airplane seat next to the bathroom. I think that's a strong example. And I'm definitely going to use banana now. I feel like that's a really good distinction. But from moving on to there, I think we have a lot of good examples, but I really do want to get into housing. One, because I think for a lot of our listeners in California, that's a very tangible fear. And I think this is somewhere where NIMBYism definitely breeds. But if we could first kind of go back to the origins of NIMBYism in housing. And I kind of find it very much in the development of suburbia around probably 1950s going forward. How does that start per se? And you can even use your own example of suburban sprawl in uh, Pennsylvania. And also how does that carry somewhat of a racist undertone that I kind of still see in a lot of the conversations today? Mm. So there's a lot to unpack here and feel free to follow up on anything if I, if mm -hmm. I don't get to it or forget to address the, the racial components. I mean, just because th there's a lot to unpack here. In terms of the, the, the history of NIMBYism, it's actually difficult to flesh out. I would say that the general contours of it is that, you know, you can go back into records from the 1700s and find reference to someone complaining about an ugly house being built in one of the like northeastern colonies of, of the United States. And, and it's like, wow, this is, this is like, people did not like that thing in their, in their backyard at the time. But the use of regulation to limit what can be built where, in a very formal context, was really codified in the 1920s through mm. a Supreme Court decision, Euclid versus Ambler, which said it gave the local governments, which local governments are what controls the vast majority of land use 
in the United States. Yeah. So if you if you are someone who's interested in politics and you care about housing, housing affordability, you know, presidential elections are exciting to follow, but the real meat of that politics is at the local level, which has a whole lot of, you know, eventually I think we're going to talk about what people should do. And I think mm-hmm. that the, the recipe for that is very different than when people think about things like healthcare or climate change, which are more federally driven. And this local power to control what goes where really came down to nuisance law, right? You don't want, in the the original case, it's often about factories and manufacturing. There are good reasons not to allow a cement production facility near a residential neighborhood that is tied to property values because everything comes down to, you know, everything that happens around you is going to affect your property value pro or con. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that can be just public health, right? You have like soot going into the air. I think the science around particulate matter at the time was very undeveloped, but now we know <laughs> it's, it's bad for a cement factory to be near a, a residential neighborhood. That's where it initially starts. And eventually it definitely develops a sense of a hierarchy between single family housing to multifamily housing mm-hmm. to light industrial, et cetera. The real kickoff here is that the sense of nimbyism and protection of home values was less vehement at the time. Bill Fischel of Dartmouth has some great work on this, looking at Google engrams. So looking at the, the, the use of different terms in written works and how that changes over time. And in one of his papers, he looks at the term housing prices, I believe. And it is just kind of a flat line until around 1970. And then this massive spike happens where people become interested in their home values and housing as an investment. And his argument is that this is related to larger economic forces about housing as being a better investment than other, mm. other vehicles. And that's just kind of a, a radical reshaping people's minds. But all that is to say is that how we view nimbyism today and people being very wary of things that may affect their home value. It is something that's gotten more intense over time. Communities have gotten better at mobilizing to protect their home values, for better or worse. And our political institutions are, some would say, not well-developed to deal with that. Others would say they are perfectly (laughs) well-developed to reward homeowners who care a lot about protecting their home values. So that's a bit of the, the history of it. I think that it definitely was expressed earlier, certainly in terms of racial exclusion to prevent non-white residents from following white residents out of American cities during the mid-20th century. And I, I guess at, at the risk of, of rambling too much, I'm happy to <laughs> address a, a more focused question there rather yeah. than going too deep. Yeah, and that's totally good. And I think you touch on two really important points, which is one, that zoning, there's a fine line and a hard balance, I think, for policymakers to strike of how to zone and how do you have land use policy. Because as you said, there's certain things that kind of transcend just nimbyism and more into that banana field. Like no one really wants certain things across the board in residential areas, whether that's for public health reasons or property value reasons. But yeah, as you said, there's a good reason to have factories and industrial zones and residential zones. But I think the kind of the more important point there is that there's also this divide between ownership and renters to an extent too, when it comes to NIMBYism, in the sense that like renters obviously live in an area and have an invested stake in their community, but they don't have that added property value aspect where they're driven to push everything outside of their sphere of control and investment because they're instead they're usually the ones who are going to be the beneficiaries of whatever the project might be. So I I think that's an underrated kind of point in the dichotomy between the two groups and how it breaks down along NIMBYism. I would say when it comes to renters, two things. So the, the, the classic divide is that 
homeowners, and this again comes from Bill Fischel's work, the home voter hypothesis, which is that you know these homeowners have an incredible literal investment in, in their home value. And importantly, it is an asset which is fixed in space, right? So if their environment changes around them and it may affect it, they can't just take it away with, with a few exceptions. So the idea being that homeowners are uh, incredibly active in local politics and have the kind of strongest NIMBY tendency. And he has a great line out of it, which I try to insert in all the work I do, because I just think it captures kind of the psychology of NIMBYism, which extends beyond housing. So in the home voter hypothesis, Fischl opens in the first 10 pages with this great example from when he would go to these land use meetings in Hanover, New Hampshire. He's faculty at Dartmouth. And he saw a neighbor protesting a development and complaining about it and saying it would cause all sorts of hazards uh, within the community. And he thinks to himself, I know this guy. This guy is not one of these wacky NIMBY individuals. He's, he's a sensible person. Why is he so worked up about these things, which are probably, you know, there's, there's one in a hundred chance of what he's describing actually happening. And the term he uses, the sense he uses, which I love, is that it's not the expected effect. It's the variance, which it, terms coming from statistics, but essentially saying that a lot of it comes from not what is likely to happen. It comes from what could possibly happen. Mm. And because humans tend to be very risk averse when it comes to losses, uh, and this goes back to Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and prospect theory, um, they will overweight these large losses that could happen from some sort of catastrophe, a nuclear power plant, uh, you know, melting down. That's a, that's a very extreme case. But it's the idea that people focus on the worst possible outcomes, even if the probability of that is so low, that they really economically in a rational sense should not be that concerned about it. Now, the reason this is important is that it also brings renters into the NIMBY world. And from my past research, part of it based in California and San Francisco specifically, what I found was that in an exit poll, of voters in San Francisco, there was a measure in 2015 that would essentially ban new residential development in the Mission District, this uh, rapidly gentrifying, historically mm. working class Latino neighborhood. This was in 2015, and it was on the ballot, meaning every citizen in San Francisco could vote directly on this measure, whether or not it would pass. And what my poll asked, among other things, was if this proposal, if this ban would cover your neighborhood, would you vote for it, right? If given the chance to stop new development in your neighborhood, would you, would you support that? And the expectation from this home voter hypothesis, from this classic literature about housing and NIMBYism was that homeowners would be all over this. This is like straight up a homeowner policy. They would love it. But what I found was that support for that type of ban was actually much higher among renters in hmm. San Francisco than it was among homeowners. Hmm. Like the real NIMBYs in, in, in California, in San Francisco, were, were the renters. And this was completely unexpected. You know, I, I think many people who study urban politics and, and housing for a while, you know, would have inklings about it. But from, you know, more of a political science background, this was surprising. And doing larger nationwide studies, what I found in that article is that homeowners have this consistent NIMBYism, no question. They oppose housing that's that the closer it is to where they live. But when it comes to renters, a lot of their NIMBYism is driven by a fear of rising housing prices. And so when you look in expensive markets, places like much of California, certainly much of LA, renters there express as much NIMBYism as homeowners, 
when it comes to market rate housing, housing that isn't subsidized affordable. And it's due to a fear that this housing will actually drive up their rents locally. Huh. And what's stunning about it, and this really gets into the question of, do you support something in, in concept and in, you know, in, in the large scale versus opposing it locally, is that these renters still support large increases in the housing supply citywide. Yeah. <sighs> if you ask them about a massive you know, 10% increase in LA's housing capacity, these renters are all about it consistently across the board, majority support. But that one glassy-faced condominium down the street, yet that is kind of the supply need to come online, the theory is that that, that might actually cause my neighborhood to gentrify or my landlord to decide mm. to renovate the place or raise my rent, right? So the long-term benefit of housing supply, that's far off. If I, if I get evicted or I can't make rent next year, I'm not even going to be around to enjoy that, right? So it's the NIMBYism is about these low probability risks that are the, the effects of which would be substantially high, right? So for the renter, that is, I support housing in general, but housing near me, specifically individual projects, that could be a threat to me. And therefore, I'm going to block this new development locally. So all that is to say, it's a long-winded way of describing that renters show nimbyism, in some cases, just as high as homeowners when we try to quantify it. And it's driven in the housing case by a concern about rising rents in their immediate community. Yeah. And that's so funny. That seems almost like a bit of cognitive dissonance there in the sense that you would know that a larger supply of housing will drive down the price. I mean, and that, that's kind of like the classic economic model there, but you don't want it near you because you feel like it would temporarily raise prices in your area. And I wonder how much that is true. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much that's true as if in highly gentrified areas or just areas that had a large influx of housing did rents go up. But I would tend to think not in the sense that there's a variety of different housing options available for people. Yeah, so I, I would just jump in to say that the most rigorous studies of the causal effect of new housing coming online within a neighborhood, so new market rate housing being built, is that it has no effect on nearby prices or mm -hmm. a very, very noisy, hard to, hard to estimate effect. Um, and there's similar studies about actually affordable housing in many neighborhoods has no effect on local prices. In some neighborhoods, new affordable housing actually improves home values. So what this really is a case of is oftentimes it's a, things happening at the same time and therefore inferring a causal relationship. The, the counterfactual is often that housing is built there because property values in the larger community are rising. Therefore, mm -hmm. a developer sees the ability to kind of ride that wave and get a return on this new building. If that building didn't come online, the property values would still rise because of yeah. these larger <laughs> economic forces. And so seeing this kind of physical manifestation of what is, what is often very high rents, luxury housing, just because rents have gotten so high, that is clearly a beacon for concern. It's like that is what's, what's driving this when really kind of these larger economic forces are often driving the rising prices. So in terms of evidence of new housing development specifically causing a neighborhood to gentrify, there really isn't empirical evidence around that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that only confirms the fact that NIMBYism is just rooted in that variance, in, in the fear of the unknown and the fear of I'm kind of happy with the status quo, whether that's because I have a home or I am in a rented apartment or complex of some kind. And I just don't want any change, really, because that might upset my 
livable happiness or whatever you might call it, just the status quo kind of at the moment. But there's clearly um, from, I mean, I was focusing again more on housing in California, but across the board, there's clearly a need for development. You mentioned infrastructure. The infrastructure state is clearly bad. You hear this every year when an infrastructure bill comes up, that there's bipartisan support, but it always crumbles, uh, no pun intended there, one way or another. But how can then, to kind of transition now into people who are either housing advocates or just kind of want to be rational actors, I guess, in the sense, how can people, obviously on the local level, I think, as you had mentioned, oppose NIMBYism as a roadblock to important developments? Do you go to land use meetings? Do you, like, what is the way to kind of combat, whether it's like the power of a homeowners association or something like that? Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to important developments, I think that's by definition going to be in the eye of, of the beholder. And I think there are a lot of groups out there that you know, NIMBY, NIMBY is a catch-all, which, can, which is often used to unite groups opposed to a specific type of development, but not mm-hmm. to unite groups in favor of mm. what, is, what things should look like. And the example that, just the rough context we give is that you can have, oftentimes you'll see homeowners who, who've been there for a long time, have paid off their mortgage, have now a very wealthy property under them, uniting with affordable housing advocates. And they're united in opposition to a new development, which, which is framed as not having enough affordable housing within. Mm. And so all the units being market rate. And if you're an expensive market, then new market rate housing is going to be considered luxury, right? Yeah. Um, and so these groups will be like, that's inappropriate for this neighborhood. It's going to ruin the community. It's not going to solve the affordable housing crisis. Now, the problem is if you, those two groups together can, can unite to, to block and derail things. If you lock those two groups together, you can lock them together, you know, for for days, and they're not going to come out with what would actually be appropriate for their community, right? The homeowners aren't going to want enough affordable housing or to raise taxes high enough to fund that affordable housing in order to have that save the community. And the uh, affordable housing advocates aren't going to go along with what the homeowners want, which is probably keep the status quo the way it is, because that's caused their property values to rise so high. and so all that's to say is that when you look at the types of housing that is that are needed, that's oftentimes you know in the eye of the beholder. But what I would say is that if people want to get involved and they have concerns about how things are developing in their community, whether it comes to housing or other types of necessary infrastructure, I mean the nimbyism around new bike lanes is mm. incredibly intense, just because people have such attachment really? to. Huh. Mainly, mainly around parking spaces is where this comes down to. I mean, mm. it is a, it is a, it can be a big quality of life dictator in a city whether or not you have to drive around for an extra half hour at the end of your day, or is there a parking spot right outside of your apartment? Right, if all that parking was taken out for a bike lane, I could see why that might be a bit frustrating. That's not to say that an individual like that that we should be using public space to offer free parking as a benefit. But the point being that something like bike lanes even. Uh, that is settled in local government, often by neighborhood councils, neighborhood political institutions. So here's the upshot of it is that because land use is controlled at the local level, that may make it less exciting than a presidential election, but it means the levers are much closer to you and where you live Mm -hmm. as as a listener, you as a listener. Um, And also local government has abysmal turnout rates 
So <laughs> if you have turnout rates for an election of around 20 or down to even 10%, I think LA had an election in the past few years, which was 11% turnout because it was yeah. an off cycle election. That means that small scale organization can make a big change in a way that is much harder to do at the federal or even state level. And so really trying to show up for these meetings, make public statements, organize individuals around local candidates, city council candidates, even people who are going to be on oftentimes their local community boards, certainly in a place like New York City has a strong community board structure. That actually has, has the ability to control a lot of what happens when it comes to the built environment. Yeah, I think that's a really easy way for people to get involved then. I also like that you pointed out that a lot of NIMBYism is just rooted in contrarian kind of positions and not any sort of way forward or solutions. It's a lot of, I don't like what you're doing, but you know, what can we do differently? And as you said, there's some homeowners who are in that banana category who just say the solution is no solution. But I think there are a lot of people who will shoot down various things and say, okay, well, we have this large plot of land. And yes, it might increase traffic slightly, but what do you envision for this then that is ideal? And at that point, most people uh, leave and, and say, I don't know. But I think, I think that's a really hard part of, of kind of development. And I know on the public policy level, I think it was Minneapolis, I'm not positive, that significantly changed their, their zoning requirements or opened up various duplexing of sorts. I don't know if you know kind of what I'm talking about or if there's other examples mm -hmm. of this, mm -hmm. but how is that kind of on the policy level combating it, if at all? So, you know, Minneapolis historically has been a place that has been the exception that proves a rule. Minnesota in general, I, going back to the 1970s, you know, they were kind of the first uh, but only state to really pull this off where rather than letting private companies compete against, you know, say, play the subsidy game, going to different <laughs> suburbs and saying like, look, yeah. the next town over is going to offer me, you know, no taxes for X years. So what are you going to offer me? That way they would play these games yeah. off of each other. In, in Minnesota, they, they uh, passed a uh, legislation that basically said, we're going to pool all of our tax resources from here on out and redistribute them. This way, something like Walmart can't place against each other. We're going to mm -hmm. get the best deal for the Minneapolis region or, or Minnesota as a whole. And it's a great model. I love it as a political scientist. No one else has been able to reproduce that. So you can think about that Minnesota nice or just some cultural aspect there. So the fact that Minneapolis pulled this off, right, it's great. I don't think it's going to tear across the United States right now in, in repeaters, but it's basically the idea that we need to make it easier and, and essentially allow two, three, four unit development in places which previously were exclusively left for single family homes. Mm. And the reason why that's important is that when you limit an area to only single family housing, which, you know, many of, of our listeners may have grown up in a single family home. I did for one, there's, there's a lot of, you know, nice quality of life benefits to it. But part of it is that it's very expensive to build. Oftentimes communities will say you have to have a single family detached home on an acre of land or more, two, three acres. The effects of that are that it is it sets a what we call a price floor in order mm -hmm. to enter the community. So now if only single family homes can be built, there are no apartments that are affordable to lower or even middle income families often. And that is a way that neighborhoods have been able to preserve economic segregation, saying mm -hmm. that, well, you have to be this wealthy to move here. There's a quote from in one of the popular books on, on NIMBYism that referred to Greenwich, Connecticut as Tiffany's. 
and saying like, look, you can't buy cheap jewelry at Tiffany's. Well, we're like Tiffany's. You can't buy a cheap house here. But the effect of that is that you have large swaths of these metropolitan regions that are off limits to people who don't have a certain income level. And because income and wealth is so correlated with race in this country, mm-hmm. it is a tool to, that preserves racial segregation mm. within this country and was openly, I would just say, happily used by many suburban communities starting in the mid-20th century to have white residents leave cities, but also pull up the, the ladder behind them in a way that minority families could not. And you can see this in racial maps of metropolitan regions, uh, the concentrations of non-white residents within the cores of cities and within the wealthier suburbs, concentrations of white residents. Yeah. So yeah, I guess maybe it is the Minnesota nice factor there. And that's the only way that it's just not happening elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it is going back to our initial discussion, right? The, the cement factory or maybe even the nuclear power plant, there might be some legitimate concerns there about that going in the middle of a suburb. But adding a duplex that would probably be smaller than a McMansion in some of these areas and just housing two people would do a lot for the housing crisis at a really low cost to everyone else in the neighborhood. I would agree. The, the, the question is, as you said, probably at a low cost. And what I said before, you know, the, the, the quote I, I, I referenced earlier is that it's not the expected effect, mm-hmm. it's the variance. So long as either the homeowners or people organizing against these types of developments can convince the homeowners who are much more likely to not only vote, but much more likely to show up at these planning meetings. So long as they can convince them that there is a worst case scenario that is Mm -hmm. possible to happen, that is what's going to lodge in people's minds. What is that duplex going to do to local property values, to perceptions of the neighborhood? If that is more affordable, what are the types of people that are going to move in here Mm -hmm. and either directly, you know, affect my quality of life or, you know, even if you don't even have to be racist to think that the market is racist, right? So you're <laughs> like, I, I really have no problem with the diverse neighborhood, but if that affects my property value, because I know racists would eventually want to buy my house, <laughs> I'd say, no, it's, it's not worth it. And there's some great research by um, Professor Clayton Nall at Santa Barbara and William Marble of Stanford showing that even, you know, democratic liberal homeowners who support affordable housing writ large kind of support what we call liberal housing policy. They are not immune to this. And if particularly if you try to message them saying that this is going to help bring down housing costs and make your community more affordable, that actually has a backlash effect. They're less likely to support the housing when they connect the dots that this could, this could lower <laughs> local housing costs. It's like, I'm a homeowner too. And so, so these, these nimbyism is something which has very weak partisan bounds, which is quite surprising given how polarized American politics has become along partisan lines at the federal level. Things get a lot more murkier at at the local level. Yeah, all you need is that worst case scenario. And I think that example probably sums up nimbyism at its core, which is, yeah, I'll vote for anyone who uh, says we need more affordable housing. But uh, even if I'm okay with a diverse neighborhood, even a slight decline in property values, and uh, I'm out the conversation. Michael, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening, and I really, really appreciate uh, coming on to Contested. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, It was an absolute pleasure. I could talk about this (laughs) for a very (laughs) long time, which is why why I'm studying it. So, um, you know, I'm excited that people are, are, are paying attention to it. And like I said, it may seem like an intractable problem, but because local politics is often somewhat ignored, it means the levers are right there. And that this is an area, if you care about politics, but it seems like fighting for, you know, 
healthcare or something at the federal level is, is, is difficult, this is something that's actually actually possible in your local community. So I think that should be a point of excitement for, for listeners. Yeah, uh, I think uh, a bunch of people will take this and run, or at least I hope. Um, thanks again. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'd really, really like to thank Professor Hankinson for coming on today. It was really great that we could have someone who's very knowledgeable explain a topic that I think by now you realize is a lot more prevalent than you might think. If you're interested in some of his work, all of his research is published on his website. That website will be in the description below, so feel free to check that out. And until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.